Hi, and so awesome to have you here on my podcast, Change and Perspective, your podcast for inspiring new ideas for a conscious and sustainable life while traveling and at home. My name is Katrin David. Join me on my adventure to more positivity in the world. It's interview time again. I actually really had to look it up. The last time I did an interview in person was in India and Afdanya, a long time ago, really. This one was super spontaneous and I'm so grateful that Niaga Lena took the time and um, told me so much about biodiversity, about the connection to climate change. Oh, it was, I don't know, really amazing. I also felt that there's not much time left and we are about to hit the wall with high speed. But we can still slow it down and we can lower the impact. So climate change is around the corner, but we can still make it happen. It's linked to biodiversity. There are a lot of challenges, but um, in this interview, he also shares some really hands-on recommendations, what you can do when you choose a tour, go to the market, like when you're traveling and all kinds of stuff. So it does start at home to make a difference at home. And, and what I mean by that, This will also come in the interview. So without further ado, here comes the interview. Welcome to the podcast, Change the Perspective, back here again and with another interview in person this time again. Um, it was not easy to find for me a project here in Vietnam, but I'm really happy and grateful that I kept looking. I'm sitting here right now with Niaga Lennart. Um, he is a project director from an organization that is working to protect the most endangered primate species here in Vietnam, the Cat Balanger. And um, he's actually coming from the, from the US and got a lot of knowledge in conservation, in educational background, also in projects. And I'm really grateful that he can probably share a lot of insights on that part and um, Yeah, thank you for taking your time, and I'm very happy to have you here on the podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me on. Um, I think it's always really important to share any information that we have and knowledge you have gained with people like you, because you have a better ability to share it with the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the lessons that we learn here and elsewhere can be applied in many, many different places. And we can't always get people to do that. So thank you for coming here and taking the time to reach out and look for work that's being done in the area and to share that information with other people. Thank you. All right, I think let's start right off uh, what you personally got you here on the island. So um, <laughs> why did you decide to basically take your energy and to save um, the Langro? It's a common question. Um, <laughs> yeah. So my background is a big mix of different things. So academically, it's a combination of anthropology and geology for undergraduate work and for graduate work, uh, ecology and environmental change, or landscape level ecology. And one of the really important pieces of all of that is the human nature interface. We tend to oftentimes think of conservation as being about the animals and the plants, but really it's about the people and how people interact with their environment. So when I was looking for work, I was looking for work outside the US, because it's to me it's more interesting being outside the US. You have a lot of your assumptions challenged, you have to learn a lot of new things and experience new things. And this, this particular position opened up. And looking at the type of work that was being done here, it seemed like a relatively good match for some of my interests and my background as well. I've been working in Vermont for a while on a project 
through an organization called the Staying Connected Initiative, which was to try to find ways to maintain wildlife corridors between protected areas and to help with climate adaptation. Because as the climate changes, not only does wildlife need to move, so do plants. And we don't tend to think about that very much. And plants need corridors just as much as, as any wildlife does. In fact, in some cases more so, because they don't usually can't move very far. And the approach we had taken there was not to try to purchase land and set it aside and keep everyone out, but to go and talk directly with people who own land or town planning commissions or outdoor organizations or hunting groups or shooting groups or whatever it was, and look at how they were using the land, talk to them about their interests and what they wanted for the future, talk to them about the concerns we had with the movement of wildlife and plants and things, and explain to them how the property they already had was currently really good for them, and how we could find a of these two different desires, their desires of how to use the land and their desires for the future, and the concerns that we had about keeping these wildlife corridors intact without having to try to generate gigantic sums of money and get legal fights about taking land or anything. Mm -hmm. And the, a lot of it was to connect people to various different resources to help them meet their particular goals and our goals. The project here shares a lot of that kind of approach. We have an education program we do in all the schools on the island. Uh, we have local people working with us in different villages on anti-poaching issues, on land protection. We work very closely with the National Park and support the rangers through a combination of direct financial support, training opportunities, educational opportunities, equipment when we can, things like that. So this is kind of a nice combining together of those different elements of the people side and the nature side. Mm -hmm. And of course, conservation tends to be very political, always. And we work very close with the politicians here as well. So this was kind of a, this was a job that popped up that had a good mix and I was interested. So I said, yes, come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, like you've never been here before, you were just like, sound interesting and I'm mm -hmm. going to try it. Yeah, yeah really I, I kind of like to go places without a lot of information first. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I have lived in Asia quite a bit though. In the 1990s, I lived in China in a small city with small Chinese standards. <laughs> it was a city of a half million folks with two foreigners, myself and another teacher. I was teaching college there. Oh. I lived for two years in China that way. I lived in Taiwan for a while, mm. worked in Indonesia briefly. So this was not unfamiliar, mm. but I had not been to Vietnam before at the time. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, you already um, talked a lot about what you are doing, like different education programs, mm. anti-poaching pro anti programs. So. Um, Maybe we can start off by why is uh, the cat balinga so endangered? It's interesting, it's, it's insane when you see, look at the numbers that it went from 2,500, 2,800 individuals in the 60s to merely like 50. 40 in 2040. Okay. Yeah. And where is it now at the 63 moment? 63 right now. 63 babies born this year. Mm -hmm. We've had four babies born this year. Um, there was a little violence, intergroup violence between some of the males in the group, and one of the babies was killed. That's part of the natural process of selling side, but it is part of the natural process that takes place. So we are currently at 63 animals, and that's not an estimate. We can do direct counts of all the animals. We're usually only off by one or two, depending on if there are solitary animals cruising around. We'll always say, oh wait, how much is it really? I mean, you're just guessing. So, no, we're not guessing. We, we can count all the animals. Um, the several different factors combined to drop the population, and these are the same factors that are true through a lot of Vietnam and Southeast Asia and other places in the world too. The big one was hunting for traditional medicine. So that was a very large factor, probably the biggest factor. 
a lot of that seems to have been driven by tourism, because local folks tell us that right around 96 was when the Langwars went from being seen relatively commonly to hardly being seen at all. And that was right around the time when this island got electricity and when tourists started coming here. And the first tourists mm -hmm. to come are apparently relatively wealthy Vietnamese and Chinese tourists mm -hmm. who were exactly the markets kind of expensive traditional medicine. Uh, there was also some deforestation going on. This area was a logging concession for a while from I'm not exactly certain of the years, but 1970s, 1980s. The park was founded in 1986, but the park was a little bit smaller back then as well. In 2006, us and the park and the folks managed to get the park expanded to its current size. And so a little bit of habit addition as well. This has always been a military outpost, and you had periods of time when the people posted here with nothing to do, and, oh, look, there's an animal up there. Can you hit that? Yeah, I can get that. <laughs> so there was sport hunting as well going on. Mm -hmm. A combination of these factors, but a big part of it was specifically the hunting for traditional medicine. Mm -hmm. And it, uh, one point of clarification, despite our name being the Cat Biolanger Conservation Project, our mandate here is actually the biodiversity conservation for the entire archipelago. Mm -hmm. The langur is sort of the flagship species and the umbrella we use to protect as much as we can. The reason for that is you kind of fall into this charismatic megafauna trap. The reason why animals like gorillas and chimpanzees and lions and tigers and elephants get the lion's share of the money is because, in part, not just because of big, pretty animals, but use a wide territory. There's a lot of other animals and plants in those areas that need protections as well, but they're not going to get it. Or they might get it, but it's a small area. Mm -hmm. So if you can use one species to protect a very, very large area and use it as a relic to protect everything else, you can potentially do a lot more work with the, the same amount of funding. Mm -hmm. That said, certain species definitely do get way more, not than the, than the need necessarily, but way more than seems appropriate times. <laughs> I mean, if you look at the IUCN Red List, the, the number of critically endangered species is well over 4,000 species. The number of species that most people hear about, it's maybe well, yeah, 5 to 12 or so. Mm -hmm. So there's a big dis unbalance or imbalance in where the funding goes and what happens to it all and what gets protected. So for us here, we kind of fall into the trap a little bit using the language to try and protect as much other area as we can. Yeah. But our anti-poaching work is actually focused on all the other species that are here, not so much in the Langer, because there isn't that much Langer poaching going on anymore, except for perhaps one incident a couple of years ago. Oh, but there's okay. poaching of all the other animals and all the other plants that are here. So how did you manage that people stop poaching the Langers? Did you education. give them for education, but also giving alternatives, I would guess? Because well, it was never, so the thing with that, you always need to provide alternatives, but alternatives are generally necessary when that's actually a way of life. Mm -hmm. And something like the Langers, there were, were never really enough to make hunting them a way of life. Okay. It was sort of an extra bonus type of thing. Mm -hmm. So providing an alternative in a case like that wasn't really so necessary. Um, there's a lady who does work in Indonesia on slow lorises, and she put it in a very nice way when she was talking her work was protecting slow lorises there. She's talking about the traditional people in the area, and traditional people leave the lorises alone. They're venomous, they bite you and cause all sorts of problems and all that, and the locals have this belief that you leave the lorises alone because if you disturb them, they can make the volcanoes erupt and cause earthquakes and all that, so they're powerful, they're small little things, but they're powerful, so you leave them alone. When new people come in the area, they didn't know any of that. Like, hey, this looks good for a pet, let's buy them, take these and sell these. Yeah. And what she found she was trying to do was to build new taboos new ways of thinking that restrict your behavior or, or focus your behavior to certain paths. So to a certain degree, that's sort of what the approach we took here, which was to 
do a lot of education about the fact that this is something that's unique and special, not just to Vietnam, which of course brings a certain level of pride, but to this particular area right here, that no one else has this thing. Mm -hmm. Reinforcing that particular message, um, giving out signs and posters and stickers and stuff like that, obviously putting stuff around, we'll see it all the time. Uh, we have some merchandise and we always try to make sure that merchandise is at a low cost, basically just the cost of making it for local people, they can resell it or use it off and then make money off of it as well and that ties them back into the languor. So having the languor is mm. a good thing for them that way because they can make a bit of money off of it that way. Kind of these, these different styles of approaches that focus on treating the languor as more valuable as a living organism than it is as a dead one. Yeah, yeah that's amazing, yeah. yeah it, it's a tricky thing to do because there's always going to be somebody who doesn't care. But if you build enough peer pressure around, mm -hmm. then everyone else starts policing that as well. The difficulty is that you might be able to have that accomplished with one particular species, but trying to get people to apply that same way of thinking to the rest of the environment in the area doesn't always work for well or takes a lot longer. And they're like, okay, the linga, I get why it's important, but why would I look for other biodiversity like yeah. plants and other yeah. small creatures? Who cares about the civics? Those are little yeah. past anyway. Or why can't I just take one of these orchids? There's so many of them. Yeah, but every year you're taking this many and you're selling them to tourists and pretty soon there's no more of them. And that way of thinking, it, it's almost like you have to do with each individual species one at a time through, which gets kind of overwhelming at times. Mm -hmm. That said, there is progress, but like I said, it's slow progress. Yeah, yeah. But it's progress. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And involving the community means you have anti-poaching units with local people? Yes, so we have, there's three villages that are adjacent to the park. There's Haisong Village, which you would have driven through coming up here, which is between the Kepa town and the park, uh, where, where Hospital Cave is. If you continue all the way up on this middle road here through the island, the northern part of the island is a town called Zaluan, which also has another harbor on it. And then on the eastern side of the island, sort of inside the park, there's a town called Viet Hat, where you can only get to by boat and then taking a small bus in or riding a bike in or by hiking into it. Those three villages are the closest to the park and have the highest incidence of hunting and poaching in them. So in those villages, we have teams of about six people each, who a lot of them are ex-hunters themselves, so they know the techniques and know what we'll do, who have stopped hunting and have started to realize that they really like the area and they want to protect the area. One thing that people oftentimes don't understand about hunters and loggers and people like that, people think they're, people, I'd say armchair conservationists, people in cities and things like that, other areas that don't actually have to be on the ground and don't know much about these, the actual practicalities of life in the countryside in rural areas. A lot of people tend to think that the hunters and the loggers are the bad guys. Mm -hmm. They're out there just to take whatever they want and destroy things. In many cases, the people doing that are out there because they love the environment, they love being in it. They are taking it and using it. They're very close to the nature. They're very close to it. They know a lot about it, a lot more than a lot of other professionals do. The difficulty becomes when there's too many people doing that or you're taking too much from the area. So if you can have a good engagement, a good interaction with these people and explain the concerns and what's happening in the area, oftentimes those people will be the very best allies you have in conservation. And in this area here, some of the ex-hunters are by far the best allies we have and the most effective people in getting some of these things to change and stop. We also have some people called Langer Guards. They are allowed by us in the park to live near where the Langer's are and keep an eye on the territory, keep people out. They're not so much there to monitor the animals themselves as they are to monitor the, the area and 
make sure that people don't come in illegally or do illegal activities in the area, mm -hmm. that sort of a thing. Yeah. We have education programs for younger children in all of the schools on the island. Mm -hmm. uh, Han is overseeing that particular project. We used to have it as a separate voluntary course that students could do kind of after school or in addition to other things. Now we have worked with the Department of Education and that has brought into the primary curriculum of the school and taught alongside a lot of the other materials. Oh, not so as a it's part course. of the school yeah. program to talk yeah, about. Yeah, not as a separate class entirely, but kind of elements that gets, mm -hmm. get brought into the courses and things now. Yeah. We need to redo our education booklet for a little bit older grades as well. Currently it's kind of a little bit a little too young, I think. So we need to redo that because it takes some work. Obviously, with education, you don't see the results of it for many, many years down the line. So it's a little bit difficult to say what the impacts will be. But if you don't do it, you have no chance to influence things. So yeah, this is term. one of those steps along the way. Yeah, yeah. And so do you think that's that's the way to address the general mindset change? Because it was, in, for me, it's, um, I don't know, weird to hear because when I talked to one girl that also worked in the other mm. um, project near Nimbin, She told me that they also have education programs mm. and then there are people coming there being like really amazed and happy to see um, all, the, all the animals and monkeys. Mm. And then they're like, okay, but how does it taste? And yeah. uh, how much is it to, to buy it? And yeah. I was like, wow, that's, that's yeah. crazy. That, yeah, that way of thinking is very, very common. Education is always the most important thing you can do, no matter what. The problem is, like you said, it takes a very, very long time to take effect. Mm. And... If you're doing education, oftentimes you are with the people, whether they're adults or children, for a very narrow window of the time they spend overall. And the rest of the time, they're back out with their communities. Mm -hmm. And who are they going to learn the most from? They're going to learn more from their family members, their grandfather, their uncle, the neighbor, whoever it is, mm -hmm. as opposed to learning what your organization or learning their school or thing like that. So you have to find this sort of balance. And you have to ideally try to educate the community as a whole as well, which is... Again, not so, not so easy to do. There are ways to do it. But again, those ways are particular to the particular areas. Mm. Yeah. And this is one of the reasons why, ideally, you have local people on your side, because the local people can educate people in the villages in ways that you can't. Yeah. I mean, people will listen also to, to people they trust, people yes, they know. Exactly. That's why they listen to their parents, people mm -hmm. in the community. So you really have to... And that's... Yeah, it takes time. Mm -hmm. But like I said, for me, it's crazy to hear... People only talking about taste and price of um, of monkeys, very, but that's but that's the way yeah. it is at the moment, and hopefully it will change. Yeah. yeah, and it's not just the way it is here in Vietnam; it's the way it is through large parts of the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. Um, on the other side, I would say I guess the change in mindset is also important on sort of um, wildlife trade. Yes. So there has to be a shift in um, people not buying it because otherwise uh, it will never stop, right? Yeah. This is one of the things that always drives me a little bit crazy when there's the talking about poaching of, say, rhinoceros and elephants and things. Mm -hmm. People go after the poachers. Understandable. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of where the, where the rubber meets, meets the road. That's the easy thing to see. Yeah. It's very satisfying. I stopped the person doing this. The problem is that the people buying those products, nothing ever happened to them. Most of those things come in through this part of the world. Vietnam and China are huge markets. Although, that said, the US and Europe are also gigantic markets for a lot of the illegal wildlife trade as well. Problem is that people buying these things, these are expensive products. The poacher is making a minimal amount of money. 
And there's an infinite supply of poachers. No matter what you do, as long as there is a demand, there is going to be someone who's going to you. take the money and go poaching. And that's cheap to, to pay someone to do that. Problem is, you get these multimillionaires who are you know, these up-and-coming businessmen or inherited money, whatever they have, who don't care and nothing's going to happen to them because they're protected either through their finances or through their positions in government or business or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And until you go after those people and have something happen to the end user, nothing's ever going to change. Mm -hmm. You can do as much as you want, but the change is going to be very, very minimal. Yeah. And this is something we need to try to get more people to understand. There are a lot of programs trying to educate people as a whole, but again, a lot of the education winds up going towards the average person. The average person is not the person buying rhinoceros, one or pangolin mm -hmm. scales or whatever it is. It's the people with money. And those are the people that are insulated from all of the effects of their own actions. Mm -hmm. So it has to be from the political side or from the regulation side that has to... All of the above. It has to be a political side, a regulation yeah. side, it has to be a legal side, it has to be a social pressure side. Yeah. It, has to be, it has to become something that is shameful to do. It has, to be, it has to become something that there are consequences if you are caught doing it. It has to be something where the laws about the use or not use are very, very clear. It has to be something where there's actual enforcement. It has to have all of those things happen. Because if one of those legs is weak, there is a, a, an avenue to kind of, uh, not exactly invalidate, but to avoid the whole consequences process and put another way of things like example of this is the ivory trade a lot of the ivory that's sold in Southeast Asia is sold through Chinese merchants they were selling them in stores for a while and traffic and a few other organizations did a survey and not as if they cracked them but a survey of what was going on to see what's happening and released a report very shortly after that those stores closed but the ivory trade didn't drop it went online instead Same people doing the it's same things, but it's, it's yeah. hidden away because one avenue was recognized and shut down, so they found a different way of doing it. Mm -hmm. Because there weren't really consequences to the people at the end buying this stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, okay, I mean, the political side and regulations is far off from me as a person, but when you say social pressure, mm -hmm. I could... What do you think it would be? Would make a difference to speak up or to talk to people and be like, okay, I, I don't know, I witnessed um, mm -hmm. people talking about it... Um, I don't know what these animal parts are here on the market. Uh, would you say that makes a difference? To, I, to think it, I think it can, I think it does. But again, who is your target audience? Yeah. The people who need to be reached by the messages oftentimes are not the ones listening to the message to begin with. Yeah. People who are listening to the message are the ones that usually agree with everybody. So yes, it's helpful to speak about the things and talk about the things. But take the podcast, for example. I think it's a great thing to do. But the people listening to it, in general, are going to be the people that are interested in this particular topic and want to know more about it, which is great because they potentially have influence out from there. The people who might best benefit from it, if they were to change their behaviors, are not going to listen, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But with one other person listening, talking, doing something, going around, it may eventually reach the other people. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing I think is really important with all of this is that a lot of folks are interested in conservation and want to be involved in conservation into their mind that is living out someplace in the field working with the plants and animals and all that we have a lot of people already doing that and there are a lot more studying that specifically what's more important is people who are interested in that concerned about it going into law going into politics mm -hmm. being involved in different kinds of businesses and bringing that conservation mindset into enacting policy and behaviors of the company and working on environmental law that 
has the potential to be much, much more powerful. Mm-hmm. So when people are interested in what to do next, you don't have to be in the field someplace. You don't have to be far away either. A lot of the most effective conservation needs to be done in your backyard, at home. And it's always very easy to say, oh, we should send money over to Uganda to help with the gorillas. Oh, we should send money to Vietnam to help with the Red Shank Duplanger or the Kepalanger. Because it's, it's far away. It's not really in your concern. It's yeah. out of your bubble. I mean, you feel good about helping yeah. those people over there. Mm-hmm. As opposed to saying, well, you know what? The butterfly population in this area is dropping alarmingly because of the increase in agriculture and overuse of pesticides. Maybe in my little backyard, I'll start planting native plants here instead. I'll bring the butterflies here so they have host plants to then breed on. And if we all do that, we can bring back, it's not restoring habitat, it's providing alternate habitat. And then that then also provides a food source for the birds that are going away. You, you can do a lot of this stuff in your backyard and do it in a way that's very, very effective. But it's, again, it has to be a slow groundswell process. But a lot of people are, they don't think about the problems at home. They think of the problems somewhere else because they're easier to see because they're far away. Yeah. And they feel they've got, they did something good, like just sending sending some money. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it's really more important to, I don't know, to keep looking for what I can do at home, like you said. Because uh, like we talked earlier, People will only listen to people in the community, mm-hmm. people they trust. Yeah. So if you see your own problems and try to solve mm-hmm. them, you have a big impact. Yeah. And also, if you are doing that in your own area, it's not just talking about it. It's demonstrating by doing. And people, mm-hmm. you might even have to talk, say anything. A lot of people see it and go, wow, look, their yard is beautiful. What do they do? Then they'll come over and approach you about these things. Or they'll see... Now, some your business might start doing much, much better because you've made some alliance with, say, a local conservation organization where a certain portion of profits go to support that, and then they have, I don't know, maybe they make cookies in the shape of whatever special thing you have in your area, and whatever, and a certain portion of that is sold on again. People look at them and go, hey, that's a cool idea. I like that. I'm going to get some of these. And they spread them around, tell everyone what's going on. And other people look at the business and say, wow, hey, that business is doing a little bit better. What are they doing? And that, that sort of thing can really have a very strong effect. It's easy to look at your home area and go, I just feel hopeless. I don't know what to do. I have no power. But people do have a lot of power. And where you have the most power is oftentimes right in your backyard. Mm-hmm. But you don't realize it necessarily. And you're yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. Action talks a lot, a lot louder than yeah. just those words. Right? Yeah. yeah, it's insane. But um, when you are a traveler, like I think many people listening also like to travel. Mm-hmm. And um, especially for wildlife trade, I think it's sometimes not really easy to see where where the, for example, souvenirs are coming yes, from. Yeah. What would you say what people listening can... can <laughs> it's always really with? difficult. Uh, one yeah. of the issues you have is that a lot of the places don't really want to tell you. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, in this area, there's a biosphere reserve, and there are certain businesses that are certified by the biosphere reserve. But it's pretty much impossible for any person coming here to find out which businesses those are, even though by making that list available, that would help those businesses do better and also encourage other businesses to do better and become part of that network. But there's a, within certain groups in the administration, there's a, a reluctance to do that because there's a fear that that will make other businesses not do so well. And they want to bring as much as they can to an area instead. Mm-hmm. Um, for foreigners traveling around, it's always a difficult question. Um, respect the local people. That's one of the most important things. People always want to try and get the best deal they can for anything. Understandable. You don't want to be overcharged for things, understandable. But also, fighting over what is essentially the price of a cup of coffee back at home 
makes what you look bad and is potentially a big impact on the local person as well. So if you're charged a little bit more, it's okay. Not 50% more or 200%, but yeah, 10, 20% more, so what, let it go. Um, if you see behaviors that you know are not good, people throwing garbage around, people on a hike picking up a snake and putting it in a bag, right there, call them out. Say, look, I'm, I'm here to see these particular things, and that is a lot more valuable out in the forest where people can see it as well. You, you can have a chance, if you see that more than once, then you have, you've been running off it twice. If you take it home, that's it, no more of that. And if you look around, there's fewer and fewer of these things. Uh, same thing with the garbage, you know, call people out on that. If you have people that are both other tourists and tour guides who are doing things that are not really appropriate, you talk to the tour company. Mm-hmm. And we can say, all, as conservation organizations, we can say all we want all the time, but the people who will actually have the influence are the tourists because they're the ones paying the money. And the businesses will pay attention to that because that's their bottom line. Mm-hmm. So will the politicians in the area. Um, personally, I like to stay in an area for longer periods of time. I like to go to a place and stay, not just for one or two nights, but stay for a week or two if I can or longer. Mm-hmm. I think that that approach helps give you a better sense of what's happening in the area, learn a bit more about it. Mm-hmm. Um, because you have a little better connection both to people in that area. Again, that's neither here nor there with people, but I find that for that, it's both less impacting in terms of your kind of waste from travel and everything else. And I think it helps you have a more clear picture of the kinds of issues that are being dealt with around the world in different areas. Mm-hmm. When it comes to supporting organizations, whether they're conservation organizations or social organizations or whatever they are, Personally, I think it is better to support the smaller ones and not the larger ones, because with the smaller ones, the money will go much, much further. You are someplace supporting money to one of these big organizations like Nature Conservancy or FFI or whomever. That's a good thing to do, but $100 for them, that's not even coffee for the office staff for a day sometimes. $100 for a small organization here in Vietnam, well, that's half of a month's anti-poaching work for an entire village. There's a big difference in that. Uh, Another thing is when people want to support an organization, money is always good, but money is not always the best thing. Sometimes other things, uh, GPS seamers, waterproof notebooks, things like that. If you're coming to an area in advance, email them and say, look, I'm going to be in the area in three weeks. Is there anything that we can bring? I've got a budget of about you know, $200 or whatever it is. Is there anything that I can bring from this area to you within that budget that will help you? That oftentimes will be more important than the money because there are like, for example, in Vietnam, there's certain things we can't buy. Like for, I just recently got a set of binoculars. We've got 17 pairs of binoculars. I've been needing these binoculars for a really, really long time to give to our anti-poaching teams. I can't buy those binoculars here. They're not that expensive, they're 150 bucks each. But they're good quality, they're waterproof, they're durable, they'll last for a very, very long time. I can't get those here. So having the money to get them doesn't do me very much good if I can't buy the product here. But if someone can bring some of them in, then hey, that's great. That can mean a lot more than the money does. Mm -hmm. And for many people, that makes them feel better as well, knowing that whatever they gave is going to be actually used in the field. When people give money, sometimes it's like, well, where's it going to go? Is it going to go into somebody's pocket? Is it going to go to a party? Is it going to buy beer with it? What are they going to do with it? So get a hold of people in advance if you can and say, hey, look, what, what can we do? What can we bring that would be useful for you? Um, and I think one other thing, people ask about volunteering a lot. 
And one of the issues that people don't realize with volunteering, the reason why volunteering usually costs a lot of money is because it is expensive for an organization to host volunteers unless your organization is specifically set up to have volunteers. If you're having volunteers, you need, you, in most cases, volunteers don't have a background in the thing or a small background. So they need to be trained. That takes time. It takes staff. Mm -hmm. They need to be taken out to areas. That takes time and staff and then fuel costs, whatever it is. In an area like this, where I think most things are done by boat, not only do you need the training for the observational work and all that, then you need a boat driver and the fuel costs for that and everything else. It all adds up very quickly. Then you put liability for the organization. If somebody's volunteering here and they get hurt, then what happens? Mm -hmm. And this is true of, not just us, this is true of all volunteer organizations around the world. So if somebody says, you know, sorry, we don't take volunteers, people sometimes get upset about that. Like, well, there are good reasons for that. Volunteering can end up costing the organization an enormous amount more than the benefit the volunteers bring. Sometimes also takes jobs from people in the community. Yeah, it can. Yeah, yeah in conservation especially, it can. Mm -hmm. That said, of course, there are a lot of organizations that are set up specifically to take volunteers. And for those organizations, that's great. Again, contact the organization directly. Don't use a volunteer service if you can avoid it. There's volunteer services that you go in your gap year and you look around. I want to go to wherever. I want to go to Tanzania and so it's And look, give this whole list of things and they charge you a ton of money to do it. Mm -hmm. Problem with those placement services, they may charge you $3,000 for a month and $500 goes to the organization they're actually working with. So whenever possible, if that's the kind of thing you want to do, it takes more time and more work, but sit down and find the organizations on the ground and contact them directly instead. Because that means that not only will you have more money to spend on the things you would like to do, you will also be able to supply more money to them and more support to them directly as well. And then in the first place, maybe start, but we also talked about starting your backyard, maybe mm -hmm. figure about maybe there's an organization close to where yes. I live, where I can help, where I have a bigger impact. Otherwise, to sum it up what you said, just dig deeper, to mm -hmm. really take in the effort to, to talk to people, to be open, to look twice, to yes. speak up. Yeah. So... Um, Yes, yeah, just using your words, basically. And look at your businesses, both locally and internationally, that are behaving in a more responsible way. I mean, not all businesses are going to behave responsibly all the time, but some are definitely more responsible than others. And check those out. Um, citizen science is a great way to get involved as well. There are a lot of applications like iNaturalist, Project NOAA, and things like that. There's also space ones like uh, Galaxy Zoo, all kinds of different things, where it's taking regular users, regular people with no background in these things, who are monitoring what's going on. They're keeping track. Oh, I saw this cool bird and they'll mark it down what they saw, or maybe not what they saw. They said, I saw this and I've got a picture of it and a location and a date. Someone else goes, ah, that's this particular bird. It's a question of serpent eagle. Cool, now I know they're over here. And that goes into a larger database that people can use to then look at the distribution of the wildlife or plants or whatever it might be, looking at the changes in range, which are really, really important as the climate changes, how things are moving around. Uh, the density and frequency of occurrence of these things, all these things are really useful. And that's something that regular people can do very, very easily using a lot of huge variety of different techniques. Mm -hmm. um, and this is true, and they're using the same techniques for identifying different kinds of galaxies. And so this is not limited to ecology specifically, it's on a whole range of different things. Yeah. It's a lot more that we can do with ever think yeah. about, yeah. And in almost every case, if there's a museum or a zoo nearby, they have some program that is dealing with you know, local environmental things or local bits of history or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. People, again, also tend to look specifically, I mentioned this specifically, the, the wildlife plant side of things, but history of an area is really important as well. Mm -hmm. 
keeping the local languages intact, learning the language of your, how many different languages are in German has, shouldn't say language, German has a lot of old dialects in it, and a lot of the dialects are disappearing. Keeping some of those old dialects alive preserves a bit of the history. Looking at different areas in, in any place that have interesting old architecture, old bits of gardens, old things like that, you find all sorts of interesting things there that are markers of the past, and in some cases also are things that preserve things from the past. A weird example was that there was a, a deer in China, which weren't of any of them left, a lot of them were kept specifically as the kind of the primary hunting animal for one of the emperors. He gave a small herd of them to someone in Europe. And I don't remember if it was in Germany or if it was Netherlands or where, but it's up kind of up in that kind of north, central to the northern of Germany and over a little bit, a little bit west, but not over into France. In China, they all got wiped out during some whole set of, uh, I think it was before the Cultural Revolution, but the, the Warring Era, Warring States Era, then up through the Cultural Revolution at the time. They all got wiped out. And a lot of the ones that are in the monastery in Europe, a lot of the ones there, Almost got killed. Some of them got killed, but they, the whole population was almost wiped out during the World Wars. But some of them survived. And then they ended up bringing some of this back to China again. So there's all sorts of weird things tucked away in bits of history. You find uh, old gardens in little towns and villages that have species of you know, lettuce or apples or things like that have been kept alive for a long time that are gone everywhere else. Bringing back these heirloom things as well. Bringing back that closer connection to the landscape yeah. is all really, really important. Because we need biodiversity, right? Yes. Because when I started to look into the whole climate sustainability mm -hmm. topic, biodiversity was not really like the first thing that popped up. Mm -hmm. Because I think when people think about climate change, it's not really the first thing. But we are in the sixth extinction yes. and um, it's really crazy. Maybe you can talk a little bit about why it's so important to have a lot of biodiversity also in the long run. Yeah. So biodiversity is one of the really interesting things. Biodiversity is a bit like money in the bank. So an ecosystem is defined by the interactions and relationships between the things in the ecosystem. A forest is not just a collection of trees. A forest is the combination of the trees and the moss and the animals and the birds and the insects all interacting together. And all of that together is called biodiversity. When the environment changes, the biodiversity is the, the resource it uses to adapt to that change. The exact makeup will change. Certain birds will leave, other insects will come in, it'll move around a bit. But having that biodiversity is what gives the environment the flexibility and the ability to adapt to change. So when you reduce biodiversity, you make it very inflexible, make it so it can no longer change and adapt to these changes. And in the much, much bigger picture, When the environment changes radically, you have what's called speciation. You have individuals, or not individuals, but populations that are cut off from other populations, and they will change and turn into new things. Like you know, the, our common ancestor between chimpanzees and humans was something different from either one of us. And then the side that led to humans was isolated through whatever factor, set of factors. And we became humans, and what be, the other animal became chimpanzees. So a speciation is a, both a how we get biodiversity, but also biodiversity is what gives us new species. So if you cut back on biodiversity, you limit the potential for both the adaptation to new areas and limit the potential for the increase in biodiversity and other species in the future. You narrow it back down again. Mm -hmm. It's a really, really important topic. We don't pay 
people pay attention to, but they pay as much attention as they should, I don't think. Sure, yeah, definitely. Thank you for sharing, it's really inspirational. Thank you so much. In the end, I always have quick questions I ask every one of my interview partners. And uh, the first one is, what means sustainability for you personally? What do you connect with the word sustainability? So sustainability for me specifically has several different factors to it. Uh, it whatever activity that is being classified as being sustainable must be able to continue indefinitely into the future without causing undue ecological damage or social damage for that matter. It needs to be something that does not take away from the environment. For example, let's say the environment refreshes at a rate of say 50%. So as long as you are taking less than 50% of the refresh rate, not in total amount, but the refresh rate, you're potentially sustainable. If you start taking 52%, you're no longer sustainable because now you're taking more than the environment produces. So always trying to live within the means of production of the environment or whatever your, your context is. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, that's probably the most important key piece of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thank you. Do you have um, a simple tool maybe that everybody can use to make a difference? We already talked about mm -hmm. speaking up, talk to people, maybe you have a different thing that mm -hmm. you would like to share. A simple tool to make a difference. Boy. Um, <laughs> Your own conscience, really, I think. Um, there's a lot of different easy answers of it. You can use this application on your phone. You can you know, go and do this particular activity. But I think the most important thing, really, is paying attention to yourself, what you think is right and what you think is wrong, mm -hmm. and doing what you think is a good thing, not just for yourself, but for everyone else around you as well. Yeah. And realistically, if you do things, good things for everyone else around you as well, that will also be good for you. I think one of the problems is that we say when it comes to politics, for example, we say, I believe in what this person's message is, but they're never going to get elected, so I'll vote for somebody else instead. Well, the reason they don't get elected is because you didn't vote for them. Mm -hmm. So if you believe in their message, then you should vote for them. Mm -hmm. So following that particular set of internal thoughts and principles and moral guidelines for yourself, I think is really, really important. Mm -hmm. And if you want it in a more simple way, like the probably simplest action is, again, using the political example, vote. Vote for, what you, vote for people who are going to do the things you want them to do. Because when it comes down to it, the biggest effects on the environment are by national policy and by large corporations. Mm -hmm. And you and I individually don't have a way of controlling those at an individual level, but together, if we all say we want this change and we elect people to make those changes take place and to force organizations and companies to follow certain principles, to rewrite laws, then we can have those things. Yeah, that's really amazing. So speaking up, taking your own responsibility, taking your own power, and um, in the end, we can connect when one speak up and we take our chance to, to, to connect like to a large group we can maybe like mm -hmm. fight yeah. <laughs> the politics corporations. Yeah. Um, is there a book that inspires you any sort of knowledge? There's a lot of books. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> it depends on what particular topic you're, you're interested in. Um, I think one of my, is a two book set. And there is, the first one is 1491 by Charles C. Mann. And the second one is 1493, also by him. 
Okay. These are not really ecology books or conservation books. They're sort of history anthropology style things. But what's interesting about them, 1491 is kind of analysis of the state of the Americas, North America and South America before Columbus got there, hence 1491. 1493 is sort of the state of the world after that. Mm -hmm. And What's really, really interesting, people don't realize, is the impact on the entire world that was made when the Americas and Africa, Asia, Europe all met each other. Yeah. Well, An example of this is, is invasive species. We now say, oh, this species is invasive, this is a problem over here, and they are. The problem is not so much that particular species. There have always been species moving around throughout the entire history of the planet. But what's happened now, after, specifically after 1492, after what's called the Columbian Exchange, is that rate of exchange skyrocketed enormously, thousands of species a year, instead of one or two, one or two every 10 years or so. And environments get overwhelmed by the amount of new things coming in and the, this exchange back and forth. So reading kind of about that period of this exchange back and forth of not just ideas and people and cultures and foods, which is a huge piece of that, but all the other things that happened as well, from diseases to invasive species to domestic animals to everything, I think gives a really important uh, vision into just how rapidly we are making changes take place now. And that, that speed of change is a key thing. This is what's making climate change a big issue. It's not that the climate is changing. The climate always changes. What's making an issue is that we are doing it really, really fast. Mm -hmm. like, the really people can't realize it. Yeah. The difference is like walking up to a wall and putting your hand on the wall versus being in a race car and driving at the same wall at 260 kilometers an hour. Mm -hmm. One of them, no problem. The other one, you're going to die. This is pretty much the situation we're in with climate change now. We are pushing these environmental changes far beyond anything that has happened ever in its history, yeah. except for maybe one or two instances where there's giant meteor impact or something like that. Yeah, so that's the speed we also can't adapt to. That's why it's a problem because yeah. the Earth gonna be here like I don't know, maybe forever, but we can't. Yeah. We only have a certain um, limit mm -hmm. boundaries where we can yeah. live. Yeah, this is another thing people don't get about conservation. Yeah. People think again, I mean, it's for conservation, but people. And it's not about, it's, it's about people's behavior, but it's also protecting the environment so we can live in it. Yeah. It, I mean, the earth is gonna be fine. When, if, yeah. Whatever happens in the next five million years, yeah, it'll be okay. It took five to 10 million years after the KT extinction, the big impact that came down in the, in the Yucatan, that wiped out the dinosaurs and possibly triggered the Deccan traps, the big volcanoes in, uh, in India, the combination of things that wiped out a significant portion of the life on the planet at the time. Five, 10 million years later, okay, back to normal again, more or less. Different collection of species, more or less. But the dinosaurs weren't there anymore. And yes, birds are technically dinosaurs, but the dinosaurs weren't there anymore. That's the position we are in. We are our own meteorite coming in right now. We need to pay attention to that. And we need to stop treating things like conservation as some weird fringe thing over there that's just trying to be some hippie do-gooder is trying to hug, hug trees and play with animals. We're trying to save your lives yeah. <laughs> because no, we live here and yeah. everything we do, whether you are a person off in the woods who is growing or hunting their food or whether you're a person in the city using your computer, every single thing we use, everything we do comes from the environment. Mm -hmm. And 
if we overuse that, that means no more for us and also no more for anything else either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when we talk about speed and uh, how fast we are moving towards this climate change, do you think we can make it? I mean, I mean looking at the current uh, science prognosis like 2030 and all the IPCC mm-hmm. reports and stuff, do you think, are you still positive? It depends on what level of loss or damage ever you're willing to accept. Right now, we are, there is no going away from the fact that we're going to have major and severe changes. We're not getting away from that at all. And we have the, one of the big ones that is only sometimes talked about is permafrost and the method released on permafrost. And that's it's called the Calthrite gun. That is already loaded and the trigger's been pulled, but the bullet hasn't left the barrel yet. The permafrost. You mean, what, what is it? Can you explain? The Calthrite the, the, the permafrost. Is this whole huge area, about in Canada, but not so much in Canada because of the bedrock, but especially all through Siberia. Mm-hmm. It has a ton of organic matter frozen in it, which is no, which is, well, it's frozen, it's not fermenting, it's not producing any methane. But as the permafrost starts to melt, which is happening very, very rapidly, it's releasing that methane. Mm-hmm. And methane is about 20 times as powerful as CO2 as a greenhouse gas. It doesn't last as long in the atmosphere, but it's a much, much more powerful one. So as the climate warms, we're releasing gigantic amounts of that. You can see areas in Siberia where there's literally explosions from the ground that are a few hundred meters across, where the methane area has bubbled up and blasted the interior out. You can go into areas in, in some of the, uh, the frozen bog areas, punch holes in the ice, and light jets of methane on fire that raise up you know, five, six meters up in the air. This is, this is not something that's happening in the future is happening right now and is accelerated. We are not going to get away from the long-term effects of those things. We're not going to, and we are going to lose a significant portion of the ice off of Greenland. And that was going to have, most likely have big effects on things like the Gulf Stream, which is what keeps Europe warm and livable. We are going to have those effects no matter what we do now. How great those effects are is what we can change now. We can't stop them. But now we still are at a point where we can say, if we make radical changes now, we can limit the effects of these things. Yeah. And that's the situation we're in. We're, we're no longer going to stop it. That's scary. But scary. <laughs> yeah, it is, absolutely. It yeah. should be. People should be scared. Mm-hmm. For older folks, the effects they're going to feel maybe not that much, so they can kind of say it's not my problem. But for middle-aged folks like myself and younger folks, it's a real problem. Mm-hmm. And this is coupled with the increasing use of resources as well. I was born in 71. In the time period I've been alive, the population of the planet, people has more than doubled. And the, not number of species, but the number of individuals of the species has dropped by 60% mm-hmm. of wildlife and things like that. Mm-hmm. Those are very, very big numbers to take place in a little over 40 years. Mm-hmm. These, these are not, things you can look at and kind of push aside as a meaning. These are serious things. Yeah. But maybe when you say in, a, in between 40 years, we can still see this small, short portion mm-hmm. of time and think, that, okay, we can maybe turn around in the same small yeah. portion of time. We get, so there's momentum. It's like a ball yeah. rolling down a hill. Yeah. You're not gonna, okay, or maybe it's like a car rolling down a hill. You're not going to be able to stop it right away, mm-hmm. but you can slow it down, and if you get slow enough, then you can stop it. Yeah. So like I said, we are going to have some of these effects. Mm-hmm. 
how far that car rolls down that hill, how, how, how much more timely or how bad those effects get. That's what we have control over now. Yeah. And I think we do have control over that. That's the most important thing, that we do have control yeah. and that we can still change. Yeah. But to do that, it takes, we were talking before, that yeah. groundswell of people, of people getting together and saying, we need a change. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing a lot of that now. You know, younger people especially um, doing protests at schools and going in and younger people getting, much younger people than usual, getting involved in politics and taking much stronger stances on things. Yeah. This is really important. This is a really good sign. Yeah. We need more of that. We need more people with an understanding and appreciation of sciences, especially social sciences and environmental sciences, making policy decisions. We need to have people that can think clearly and carefully about a wide variety of issues. Mm-hmm. In, in Europe, there's this big concern over immigrants and refugees and things. Mm-hmm. Well, a large part of what triggered the exodus from Syria was due to environmental changes. Mm-hmm. There was a, one of the big droughts limited the water supply, which meant that people couldn't have their lives anymore. This is what people knew for a long time, knew was going to happen for quite a while. But no one did anything, but no one thought about, okay, what do, what do we do next? How do we proactively plan ahead? How do we help with problems that we see coming? What do we do before they become a problem? Yeah. But we don't tend to do that. We tend to always wait until things already happen and then go, now what do I do? Oh my God. Well, think ahead a few years. <laughs> so folks, let's join now. <laughs> uh, join everything we talked about and be the change. Yeah, thank yes, you for... Absolutely sharing all your information and insights it's really really helpful. I learned a lot it's really cool thank you is there anything you would like to add or say to listeners best point of contact if they would like to help or join or whatever just like to say thank you both for coming here and reaching out and thank you to your listeners for being interested and taking the time to hear what's going on in the world and hopefully for all of us we can get together and make a difference. Wherever we are, it doesn't matter if we're in the same place or scattered across the world. Wherever we are, pick something you feel passionate about that you care about Mm -hmm. and make it better. Make it what you want it to be. Yeah. The best ending I could ever think about. Thank you so much. (laughs) My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. I'm still really moved by this interview when I was able to learn a lot. It was inspiring for me to see someone that fought so many fights already and that has this full and clear picture of everything being interconnected and still sees the power in joining joining forces in building communities in getting together and just make it happen so yeah change does start in the backyard and um, We can raise our voice, we can use our voice, we can create a movement, join a movement, speak up. There's a lot we can do. It's about not backing off and feeling overwhelmed. And it's also okay if if we have the time, if that happens, but there's a lot of power in our own actions and we can change the world, we just have to start. I really want to spread this message even further and if you want to help, that would be awesome. Um, share this episode with your friends, share the podcast, let me know what you learned from it. You can contact me here or on Instagram or Facebook at 
at dx2.0. I put the links in the show notes, everything else as well, also to the project. And um, I am most importantly, leave a review please on iTunes or wherever you listen to this one because um, then more people can find it and more people can listen to it. My voice becomes louder, so that would be really nice. I would really, really appreciate it. And um, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your support. And thank you for being here. Let's change perspectives. <laughs>